Well, another episode of the Square and Compass podcast. This time, uh, I'm very happy to have uh, Chuck Dunning uh, Jr. on. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this very much. Thank you, Brother Cameron. So we got in touch through um, Esotericon, uh, which I had the pleasure of attending and which you were a presenter at. Uh, it's been a little while now, but just talk, talk to us a bit about that. How did you find Esotericon, uh, the virtual format? Um, you know, uh, just what were your thoughts on, on Esotericon 2021? Yeah, I thought that given all of the complications from COVID and the need to adjust and, and, and try to find some way to do things uh, with a virtual component, I thought they did a fantastic job at pulling it off. Uh, thankfully, there were enough of the presenters who were vaccinated that we could uh, come to Boston and uh, have a really good time with the, uh, the conference organizers there. Uh, Brian Simmons and all of those guys just do a fantastic job of hosting that event. And, um, and I thought the content was good. I, I really appreciated the opportunity to talk about um, you know, the future of Freemasonry, which is, is, is something that I know is you know, a, a big topic of concern for lots of Masons. And, um, and I, thought, I thought that things went pretty well. I think we had some technical difficulties, but you know, to some extent, those, are, those things are to be expected. Uh, on the whole, I was just really happy to, to have that experience. And, and I look forward to the next one uh, that Ryan Flynn is going to be running. Uh, you know, the future of Freemasonry is, you know, probably a topic as old as Freemasonry itself. I'm sure by, <laughs> I'm sure by 1718, they were uh, concerned about the future of Freemasonry. Um, it's a very hard question to answer because it's so broad, but what are your thoughts on the future of, <laughs> of Freemasonry? Yeah, that is a broad, a broad question. Well, um, let me start by saying where I think we are presently because, because our future is always a consequence of where we are right now. And, um, and I think you know, the, the term that I like to use for what I see happening in the fraternity right now is I think we're in a renaissance. And uh, for a while, I had been thinking that that was just in the United States. But um, I've, over the past several months, because of, of all of the internet stuff that has been going on, the Zoom meetings and so on, I've had more of an international experience in masonry over the past year or so. And, uh, and I've begun to realize that this renaissance is bigger than just American masonry. I think, I think the hotbed of the renaissance is in the, is in the United States. But, um, but what, I, what I mean by a renaissance is I, I think that as our numbers decline, one of the things that we're seeing is an opportunity to um, to refocus on what masonry is and what it can be. And, and when we look at the ritual, masonry tells us some very clear things about it being this, um, 
initiatic uh, fraternity in which men are supposed to be um, developing virtues and um, and not just intellectual virtues, not just social virtues, but also spiritual virtues. That 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 all of this is part of the Masonic experience. And, um, and so I see this Renaissance really more about masonry embracing its wholeness, not just focusing on some of the things that it more narrowly focused on in the past, which were fellowship and community service, essentially, were the big two things. And those are good things, but that's not all that masonry says that it's about. And so I see us moving in the direction of being a smaller fraternity, but one that embraces a, a more complete vision um, about, you know, what it is. The, the Renaissance, or, you know, to what extent uh, uh, do you think that this change that we're seeing and the, the Masonic Renaissance um, you know, is that being driven, do you think, by um, positive uh, forces within the craft or, you know, negative forces within the community that are kind of uh, forcing uh, Mason's hands in a sense? You know, the example I've, I've used a few times uh, when discussing this is, um, you know, the, the difference that you see in the World War One and World War II periods of Freemasonry, or the post-World War One, World War II, when you had soldiers returning from, from fighting overseas and you know, filling the lodge ranks, basically. Uh, but I always point it out, and I think this is an important thing to consider, is that you didn't see the same increase after the Vietnam War. No, when that's true. Soldiers returning. And for a long time, I was wondering why that might be, and I think that really ultimately it, it's these external forces I was discussing is, you know, in the 60s and 70s, uh, and I think to a certain extent still to this day, those taking different forms, right, you have a, a distrust in community institutions, a distrust in institutions altogether, you know, uh, uh, and as a result of that, um, you know, maybe to a greater and greater extent, people are, are just turning away from institutions as a whole. Mm -hmm. And and the result is the the reduction of membership and kind of a a we almost have to go back to to ritual focused work because it's hard to be a community based organization when people don't trust community based organizations. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and and I and I think really, um, I think both of the factors that you have mentioned, the external or categories of factors, the external and the internal to the fraternity. Are, uh, are, I think we're seeing both of those active in this renaissance. Um, as to which is actually having more of an effect on driving the renaissance, I, I think it's probably being, it's being shaped more internally, but it's definitely in reaction to the external changes that you're talking about. The fraternity no longer is welcome in society at large in the way that it used to be. Now, I think it's possible that can change, um, but, it, but it will change because the community at large sees something desirable 
about Freemasonry being true to itself, not by Freemasonry trying to make itself look more appealing. Because we've just seen, you know, over um, the last generation of Masons trying to make adjustments in the fraternity to make it more palatable to a larger percentage of people hasn't done anything to help our membership members. That's not the solution to our problem. And in fact, our problem really is not a membership numbers problem. Our problem is a quality problem. And uh, when, when Masons begin to realize that, as they are, then they work at trying to make the Masonic experience higher quality, more of what it promises to be. If you listen to the ritual, the ritual tells us what the Masonic experience is supposed to be. And so I think internally, that's what we're seeing is, is more and more Masons coming forth to try to help bring us to fulfillment of what the ritual says. Is it? Um, membership is such a funny, it, it's such a, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's such a complicated topic because, you know, uh, an outsider looking in, or even, you know, your average Mason would automatically equate, you know, a, a higher membership with, with success as, as the main metric. Um, but I think uh, as we've seen, right, and I think many organizations, not just Freemasons, recognize this. Um, you know, if your only metric for success is the number of names you have on a piece of paper, right. um, you know, that can, that can hide a lot of deficiencies. Uh, and, and, you know, to use a sports metaphor, just because you win the game doesn't mean that you played a perfect game. And if you, uh, I think, you know, reading back some of the history of Freemasonry in Windsor, for example, I think, you know, you can, reading the minutes, reading reports, you can recognize that there are problems even in the 1950s and 1920s that are cropping up. But because the membership kept increasing, it was very easy to ignore those problems until. Right. As with every problem, right? It's easy to ignore until it's not. Yes. Yes. And I'll use another analogy here that I think is, is helpful. Um, so a big portion of my career has been spent in higher education. And I have worked uh, for a private institution in higher education. And so uh, some of this applies to public institutions as well. But if you look at um, higher education, and, uh, and you look at it from a business perspective, you think, okay, well, the more students, the better, because students are paying customers. And the more customers are paying for our services, then the more money we're making and the happier everybody is. The problem is, is that the quality of the service we provide in higher education tends to go down as our uh, enrollment numbers go up. And the reason for that is you put more students into a classroom with the same uh, number of faculty uh, at the university, you get a lower quality of education for each student, per each student. Students have to, um, have to work harder to get the attention of their professors and to engage with them and interact with them. And we know that that interaction is a key to their success and their performance. Well, I think that analogy works really well for Freemasonry, where we can have lots of members, but that doesn't, that doesn't help and, in fact, actually can impinge upon the quality of their fraternal experience. 
is it possible to have um, Masonic fans as opposed to to members? Because that has been, you know, I've I've been arguing that we don't need to be recruiting, quote unquote, or, or searching for members per se, but we do need to. Um, you know, whether a lodge has ten members or a hundred members or a thousand members, you know, it does need to have a place of prominence and, and respect in the community. I've used mixed martial arts as an example. Um, I think it's a good one, and it goes to this this podcast. You know, uh, certainly I I hope many Masons tune in to this and watch this and get something out of it for their Masonic career. But I certainly hope. And, you know, to make this economically viable, you know, you need non-Masons who find this of interest and, and tune in and watch this. And, you know, uh, uh, mixed martial arts, you know, UFC, for example, it doesn't advertise itself only to other mixed martial artists, mm-hmm. right? You have uh, uh, an entire well, stadium or millions of people engaged in, in UFC mm-hmm. and a percentage of those then decide, you know what, I want to actually try this. And they go into to a gym. And then a percentage of those become the next, you know, Corey McGregor become the next uh, one of the big ones. And I think with Freemasonry, you know, yes, there are things that we, we can't or we shouldn't share because it dilutes the, the experience. Certainly, we don't want to be, be sharing secrets. But, you know, that doesn't mean that Freemasonry can't uh, form community partnerships. It doesn't mean Freemasons can't uh, uh, find people who, who want to support the craft and maybe not be a member. You know, maybe they they own a business and they want to link up with the Masonic Temple to provide services to the temple or, or whatever it is. And I think that goes to this idea of instead of focusing on, you know, oh hey, there's there's John Smith. We need to get a membership application in his hand. It can be hey, there's John Smith. I wonder if he'd be interested in, in you know, uh, if he's a, a cook or something and helping us out for, for refreshment hour or touring the building or, you know, the classic example is the Windsor Masonic Temple. When it was built in 1921, there were thousands of people there to see it be built. Uh, and most of those weren't Masons, right? They were there, but they supported the idea of Masonic Temple because it meant, you know, if you had a Masonic Temple in your town, uh, it meant your town was on the map and it was a relevant place to live in this country. So I guess it's one thing to to focus solely on membership, which I don't think we, we should be doing, but to focus on the um, dignity interpretation of the craft, I think is an, an area we could go. Yeah, I like what you just said, the dignity and reputation of the craft. And, and um and I think that it does make sense to think about how we address the dignity and reputation of the craft organizationally, institutionally. What can we do as an organization, whether it's a lodge or a grand lodge? Um, but I think even more important than that is um, individual masons um, really working hard to fulfill the vision of masonry in their own life. Uh, to to be a kind of human being that when other human beings encounter them, they go, wow, that's a different person. And in a positive way, right? Uh, you know, that's 
that's a person who uh, is dignified, who has a, a very positive reputation, you know, someone who is um, an, an exemplar of the virtues that, uh, that we laud in Freemasonry. And, and I think that, that those kinds of things really do much more for the fraternity as a whole, both internally and in terms of the way we're perceived by other people than a lot of the public stuff. I don't know how it is in your jurisdiction, but in my jurisdiction, one of the first things that happens with an entered apprentice is we put them in the northeast corner of the lodge and we talk about them being the cornerstone and, um, and how important it is for them to think of themselves as a cornerstone. And just think about all of the symbolism of, of, of the cornerstone and how it's supposed to be perfect and how it's supposed to be consecrated and its significance to the building. And, and so I think there's a lot of emphasis in our ritual on we really need to be working on those individuals and that if we do that well, then the organizational and institutional stuff will arise out of that. What are your thoughts? And I actually talked about this with, um, uh, oh, I can't think of uh, his, uh, his name now, a brother from North Carolina. Um, but it's, a, it's an episode, I'll link it when I can remember the, the name. Matt Parker. There you go, Matt Parker. Um, Matt Parker's a good friend of mine. He's good people. Very good people. Yes, he is. Very good Mason. Um, so you, you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, Freemasons who have, um, you know, you know, uh, uh, disparaged the craft in some way, either because they are you know, committing criminal offenses or just shady business practices or whatever it is. Um, you know, Matt uh, uh, Parker talked about uh, in North Carolina, they do background checks uh, on applicants. Yes. And, you know, I've I, I spent most of my professional career uh, in the criminal justice system. I was a probation officer, and then I worked in a jail uh, on the rehabilitation side. Uh, rehabilitation is one of those words; it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But basically, yeah. on the side, that was working with them upon release or as they were getting ready to be released mm -hmm. from these. Um, you know, I, I've. I've always wondered uh, the appropriate steps or, or, or how, how a Masonic Lodge should deal with, say, say uh, either a brother who commits a criminal act or is charged with something but maybe not found guilty. Um, you know, because on the one hand, you have the reputation and dignity of the craft to consider. Uh, but, you know, wearing my, my professional hat, um, you know, all the evidence uh, I've seen and I tend to believe it would indicate that you know, if you don't want somebody to reoffend, or if you want somebody to change their behavior, you know, community engagement uh, is one of the things. And uh, community engagement and employment seem to be the two things most likely to encourage good behavior. So, you know, if if somebody is either disqualified from the craft or removed from the craft for, for criminal activities and not brought back in, um, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I recognize why it would be done, but I can also see the danger of, 
of of that from a perspective of you know that's only going to encourage the the behavior you would hopefully want to stop right unless yeah. the person is going to spend the rest of his life in jail um you know there has to be a way to reintegrate in the community otherwise you're just setting up for for failure but i don't know that's just something i came up with with brother parker so any thoughts on your your in your side of the world well i agree with you um i Yes, I understand that rehabilitation means different things to different people, but in general, I will say that I think rehabilitation is much more effective in, in helping individuals and in helping communities than punishment is. Um, sometimes I guess punishment is necessary, but let's look at this from a Masonic perspective. If we've done our diligence in um, in in determining whether uh, someone is fit for membership in our fraternity, whether or not there's a good match there, then once we bring them in, we have a responsibility to that brother. And, um, and if he doesn't live up to the, uh, the virtues and the values of Freemasonry in some way, our ritual tells us that we have a responsibility to work with him to try to help him uh, improve to try to help him make himself a better man. Um, we have to make that effort. If we don't make that effort, if we just say, okay, you've committed a Masonic offense, you're out of here. If that's our only solution, then we're not really living up to what our ritual says we should be doing. Now, of course, he has to be ready, willing, and able to accept help and, uh, and to try to do something with the help that he's given. And, and if he doesn't do that, if he demonstrates that he's not ready, willing, and able, then, uh, then it may be the only thing that is appropriate is, to, is, to, uh, is for him to suffer the consequences, of the, the full consequences of his actions. And that may be the only lesson that is left to help him learn. Um, but there's a lot of things that can be done before you get to that point. And... Uh, and so, you know, I wonder sometimes if, uh, if it's just something that has changed with the change in our culture or whether or not this has always been one of those things that Masons deal with, because, you know, we can look back into the past of Masonry and we can see that there have been some pretty unsavory characters who were Masons and famous Masons. And yet, um, I still want to think this is maybe some nostalgia on my part, but I still want to think in past times, Masons were better about giving each other good counsel, about calling each other uh, on their uh, lapses in virtue and uh, in reminding each other of, of the support that was available to them to try to deal with whatever it was that they needed to deal with and work out whatever they needed to work out. Um, so, so there is a two-way street there. It really isn't just about whether the individual Mason can live up to the vision that Masonry provides. It's also about whether his brothers can help him do that. The, the idea of good counsel and Masons providing uh, a counsel to one another, is that... Um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, the extent to which that's even uh, possible in, in 2021, 
in the sense of you know the the social media like the, the divisions that we're seeing in the world are, are not staying in the world right they're making it to all sorts of organizations and institutions and um you know, it does seem harder to provide any type of counsel at all because there's so many different there's so many different groups and organizations that are online where you know a you know a mason can say x to somebody but then that basically go online and, and find you know um, even something it, it could be innocuous uh you know uh you know i've i've discovered a a scary number of freemasons for example who seem to think the earth is flat uh, and if anybody watching this thinks the earth is flat leave a comment i guess uh but you know that's one of those things where how do you provide you know counsel in, in that case because yeah. as soon as you're done they're just going to go online to wherever it is they learn the earth is flat yeah. you know and and i just think that's one of the challenges that that we have is and this is for the world but in freemasonry like there seems to be almost no commonality of experience or purpose or, or facts anymore you know you can mm -hmm. go up and down the list right vaccines yeah. politics the shape of the earth um and i think that's one thing that a lot of groups and masons are struggling with is you know if if you can't even agree on on the shape of the earth mm -hmm. how exactly do you do you agree on on anything else you know right yeah and i think that that's actually a question that has been at the core of masonry for a very long time i mean you think about anderson's constitutions and uh and and in those constitutions it says that masonry was meant to be a center of union among uh men who would otherwise never have come together you know that they they set their religious and political differences aside to focus on what it means to be a virtuous human being that there's something more universal about that than there is about politics and religion. Now, of course, even today, even, you know, that can be brought into question. But here's one of the things that I notice about Freemasonry. There are Masons that I currently know and cherish in my life that I have some really significant political differences with. Um, and uh, and and if if our relationship were to become focused on political differences, um, then we might never talk with each other again. Um, however, we also happen to have some really strong agreement, at least on the ideal of what it means to be a virtuous human being. And you know, and where we diverge is how those virtues work out politically. But they don't diverge as much on how we deal with each other individually. So here again, we go back to that individual level. And one of the things that social media has done to us is um, it's become a substitute for developing, building, and nurturing real healthy relationships with people outside of our own families and sometimes even within our own families. And this is one of the reasons why being involved in that 
person-to-person experience of, of the fraternity is so important is because it gives us an opportunity to build real friendships with people who are very different from us. And social media theoretically, hypothetically offers that opportunity. But in fact, when we look at the way people use social media, it doesn't tend to actually work that way. So I really like what I see in the craft about this hunger to get back to meeting face to face. I think we instinctively know that that's something that we need. Now, about your point on offering good counsel and how it intersects with this importance of developing face-to-face relationships, real face-to-face relationships, friendships with other men, human beings who are different from us. So my career is, is in the overlap of higher education and mental health. And one of the things that we deal with in mental health a lot is the question of how effective is it to actually confront another human being with something that they're doing that seems unhealthy or unwise or or harmful in some way. And, And the research on this shows that being confrontational really doesn't help much. That what helps is developing a real relationship with another human being. And then at some point, you develop the kind of trust in there so that you can, rather than challenging them in a kind of aggressive way, you just you point out or you ask a question about, you know, what's going on with your life here? Does that how does that fit with your values? And so you're you are kind of confronting them, but in a way that is 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 not threatening, and um, and so I, I think that there's an art to good counsel that um, uh, that we could develop more effectively if we focus on what it means to really be brothers with each other, to actually have that brotherly love with each other, to actually practice um, relief with each other. And then we can bring in some of those elements of truth and, uh, and have difficult conversations that aren't just about defending positions against each other. You, um, you brought up the idea of uh you know, an emphasis on on virtue or, or being virtuous. Certainly, that is one of uh, you know uh, one of the the Masonic principles um, which we try to emulate uh, or or try to um, grow grow within ourselves, cultivate within ourselves. But it's always one of those those. It's like rehabilitation in a sense, right? It can mean a lot of different things. Um, you know the great, the great irony of the world is no one ever views themselves as acting in a non-virtuous manner, right? The um, you know, pick your pick your worst person in history. I'm sure that 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 he or she uh, uh, felt that they were acting virtuously. Um, so I guess, how do you define first? How do you define uh, a virtue? But then also. Do you even do you think it's it's possible for an individual to to be sufficiently aware of himself to 
you know, in a, in the moment to recognize whether he's acting virtually or, or not virtually. It's always possible to look back. I know and many yeah. people, myself included, haven't been. That was dumb. <laughs> that was not. Uh, that was not a good way to act. But yeah, you know, how how in a moment does one take stock and and consider the question of whether or not his actions are are, are virtuous? And you know, specifically, how does a Mason do so? Yeah, those are great questions, Cameron. Um, there, you're right. There are lots of different ways to define virtue, but um, one of my favorite ways it goes all the way back to Aristotle. And Aristotle said that a virtue is uh, in the mean between two extremes. So, for example, the virtue of fortitude is in the mean between the the extreme of of anger or rage on one hand, rashness, and on the other hand, the um, the extreme of cowardice. And so virtue is always about striking a balance between too much and too little of whatever it is. And, and of course, that, that there's a range in there to try to find what is ideal, and that's going to differ from one person to another. But I think one of the things that you kind of pointed at that is super important here is to understand that <clears throat> we are social beings. Um, in, um, in my jurisdiction, there's, um, uh, there's language in the Fellowcraft degree on the sense of hearing, and there's language in the um, Master Mason's degree on the beehive that emphasize the importance of recognizing that we are social beings, that our best potentials um, cannot manifest outside of being part of a community. And an important part of the community experience is people reflecting back to us things that we don't necessarily see about ourselves, seeing ourselves through the eyes of other people is hugely important in community and, uh, and or is an important benefit of community. And, uh, and so if we have this idea that being virtuous is about being this super independent character who decides for oneself what is right and what is wrong in all cases, well, yes, we each bear the responsibility for that decision, but an important factor in that decision is the, the other people or factors are the other people and the relationships that we have with them. The, yeah, I think that's, I think that was, that was Aristotle's idea as well. I think the idea that part of, part of how you define yourself has to be based on the community uh, around you and your, and your relationships, right? You can't, you can't define yourself purely based on whoever it is you know you may be feeling uh, in a moment you also have to to create an identity based at least in part on your relationship with others and yes. kind of where where it is that how it is that you fit into to the community uh, right. is at least partially going to set up an identity for you probably that's probably more so the case I would think than actually individually just because we're such social creatures uh, even an introvert you know uh, from an evolutionary perspective, right? We wouldn't have made it out of the caves if not for our, our social bonding, because we certainly are not going to make it on our own. Gotcha. Uh, so 
eh, maybe that's one of the you know the ways in which Freemasonry, you know, that Freemasonry as a recognition of of that necessity of of having a group and being able to form an identity, at least in part from from relationships. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, to a certain extent, um, there's a kind of illusion of, of, of uh, you know, the term rugged individualism is popular among certain people. And, uh, and, and some people love to bash that term and other people love to embrace that term. But the idea of an individual who who doesn't acknowledge the um, the fact that they live in interdependence with other human beings um, that's uh that's actually that's actually a, a dysfunction to think that way it's it's an illusion it's a delusion to think that that my actions and my decisions are completely separate and isolated from other individuals. And one of the great things about Freemasonry is it can help break down that illusion. I mean, if you think about our, um, our mythology, the idea of the temple being built, nothing in Freemasonry symbolism um, about building temples can be done Without the cooperation, the collaboration, the teamwork, the interdependence, not only of different human beings, but human beings with different specialties, carpenters and stonemasons. And, you know, it's it, so masonry itself is deeply rooted in this idea that we are communal beings. Now, uh, focusing, uh, moving from Freemasonry uh, uh, in general to to your work in particular um, and you know your involvement not just with esotericon but your your researches um, tell us a little bit bit about you know a uh, contemplative builder what it is uh, the different things that you you've worked on and also how uh, you know anyone but masons in particular uh, where they can find uh, your work okay um, so one of the things that I came into the fraternity looking for was um, was what I had found in researching Freemasonry before I joined. And that is looking at the ritual, looking at what a lot of the great Masonic philosophers have said about Freemasonry. I saw this emphasis on a contemplative dimension within Freemasonry. That there was an initiatic that it offered initiatic experiences, and uh, along with that, um, it encouraged a contemplative life, a life that um, integrated being profoundly internal, looking within oneself to know thyself. Right, the the inscription on the Temple of Delphi in ancient Greece, the the key to the ancient mysteries, according to Socrates. Um, that it incorporated that with a virtuous life of action in the world and that the two complemented each other, that you really cannot develop yourself as an individual without being engaged in the world and you really can't make a positive difference in the world without really being fully engaged internally. 
<clears throat> so that's what I wanted. And uh, because of my background um, in, uh, in studies of philosophy and in mental health, um, I was already practicing contemplative methods like meditation and mindfulness. And so I was really hopeful that when I came into the fraternity, I would find brothers who had similar interests and that, you know, I would have that kind of a community experience. That's not what I found. What I found was um, Masons who were really interested in those two things of just fellowship, which is a good thing. And uh, doing some good stuff for the community, like, uh, you know, providing scholarships for high school students. Those are good things. Um, but I could have, you know, if that's what I had been looking for, I could have gotten that any number of other places. What I really was looking for were these contemplative and uh, spiritual philosophical aspects that I had found in my studies. Well, what I determined at that point was that and after, after doing lots of searching and, and digging and, and reaching out in different directions, this was in 1988, by the way, when I started as a Mason, that, um, that, that those things were really, really hard to find. And so um, I determined at that point that my work in Freemasonry would be to offer to others those things that I had been looking for, because I already had some resources to, to help provide them. And in um, sometime in the early 2000s, I developed a, a real close friendship with um, Brother Robert Davis and Brother Jim Tresner in Guthrie, Oklahoma, the Scottish Rite Valley in Guthrie, Oklahoma. And, um, and they, both were engaged in masonry in the way that I wanted to be. And that eventually led to me becoming the uh, director of education for uh, the Guthrie Valley of the Scottish Rite in 2011. And, and they encouraged me to begin offering contemplative practice, meditation sessions during our reunions for those Masons who wanted the same kind of experience that I had wanted when I came in. And we started getting more brothers showing up. And the next thing you know, uh, those brothers are saying, we really ought to have some sort of official recognition within the fraternity that we exist um, and that we have a purpose and that we bring something beneficial to the Masonic experience. And that led to the creation of the Academy of Reflection which was chartered in 2012. So you could see that it was a really quick development there. And, um, and the Academy of Reflection officially started operation in 2013. And so what the Academy of Reflection is, is a society of Scottish Rite Freemasons who are interested in contemplative practice. And so we offer courses in contemplative practice as well as fellowship among Masons who have those interests. And then that in time encouraged me to publish the book Contemplative Masonry, which I had originally re released around uh, in the year 2000 as an anonymous manuscript online, a downloadable manuscript online. Uh, I expanded it and edited it and turned it into a book um, and that was published in 2016. <clears throat> and that led to 
all sorts of speaking engagements and going around and providing training sessions in uh, contemplative practice, facilitating retreats for Masons and other esoteric groups in contemplative practice. It led to me being invited to help create the Masonic Legacy Society and all of the things that it does, uh, for which I'm currently one of the trainers. Um, and, um, uh, and I've got another book coming out called The Contemplative Lodge. I'm working on two more books that uh, will be coming out in future years. I've still got to get that second book out, which should be coming out this summer. And I've got this uh, website, um, well, a, a, a YouTube channel called uh, The Contemplative Builder YouTube channel, which you referred to, where I've got different videos of my presentations, audio interviews, guided meditations that people can use. I've got a website at chuckdunning.com. So lots of stuff out there. I've been a busy guy. I will uh, leave links to, to all of those things down below uh, in the description. Uh, so check all those things out. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it as a featured channel on my page. Um, yeah, you know, I've had a chance to, to interview. Uh, I have some different guests from Legacy Society, uh, Randy Sanders. I'm actually currently in uh, Missouri, so I've had the chance to see him in person for the first time. I've seen him on screen a bunch of times. Um, yeah. Uh, Matt Parker, I had on, right? He's, he's involved with Refractive Light. And, um, yeah, it, it's great to see the engagement of, of you know, so many brothers from, you know, St. Louis, North Carolina. You know, I've interviewed brethren who were involved in this from Lexington, uh, Kentucky. Uh, you know, uh, uh, John Bizak wrote Sins of Our Masonic Fathers. So there is, you know, you mentioned the the Masonic Renaissance. You really just have, you are, you are seeing, you know, all over the United States, uh, especially perhaps spurred on a bit by virtual and the ability for these brethren in different places to meet. Um, you are really seeing just a growth of, of some of these ideas uh, like you discussed and, and manuscripts being published, webinars being, being posted. Um, so it's been great to see and it's great to have so many of, of, of these Masons such as yourself on the podcast. Mm, yeah, I can imagine how how rewarding it is for you. Sometimes I think uh, podcasting might be a good thing to do, but I don't know that my temperament is is suited for it. I'm I'm more of an introvert, uh, and uh, and so uh, I, when I look at, at the kind of work that you do and other podcasters and the opportunity to have such great conversations and share those, uh, you know, with an audience. Of, of all of these different Masons and their different approaches to how we can help improve the Masonic experience, how we can help this Renaissance occur. Some Masons not even thinking in terms of a Renaissance, but that's what they're helping. You know, they're, they're helping that happen. I, I just think that that's a really interesting and cool thing to do. And I love to be a witness of it. Um, my work is in different directions, but I, I really appreciate the kind of thing that you're doing, Cameron. Uh, 